Nerve gas. Is there a hidden dirty dossier? If not, why can't number 10 on the Foreign Office get their story straight? The lying game, how the Swedes are on top of fake news. Cyber attacks, the fastest growing warfare. Cyber security now is a global phenomena that we have to take it much more seriously. And the Royal Navy ships going nowhere. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister said she believed the nerve agent used in Salisbury was made in Russia. This week, confusion. The Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, tells the German media that Porton Down has told him that the Novichok A245 did come from an official Russian facility. Immediately, Porton Down's director says they did not identify its source. Is someone lying or is someone confused? And most importantly, who used it and where did they get it from? I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford and our very own BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee here in the Sitrep studio. Paul Rogers, first of all, three weeks ago, did the Prime Minister just get it wrong or was she not telling the whole story? If you actually look at what she precisely said, there are very careful words. She did not actually say specifically to Parliament that the Russians had done it. Uh, she used a terminology which basically said they appear to be the only ones who could and we assume they did and the overwhelming evidence supports that. But she was not actually categorical and she certainly did not say that the agent had been identified unequivocally as coming from Russia. People assumed that, but when you look at the detail, she was actually very careful. So, Christopher Lee... The Prime Minister was very careful, so is this Boris just being Boris with the whole German media stand? Um, I think there's, there, there's something new, isn't there, that we're, 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 we're getting here. Um, we are either, in the public's view, and that's important at the moment, uh, we're either getting uh, uh, information that the Prime Minister didn't actually give us, as, as Paul points out, they appear, uh, it appears that the Russians might have done it sort of thing, but we've already fingered the Prime Minister and say, look, that's what you said. You said they did. And 28 other countries think that that's what she said, apparently. Or we're getting the beginnings of what there must be a bit of a fear down in, in Downing Street of an unintended dirty, dirty dossier. So WMD territory. But it is the Novichok. weapons of mass mm. disappearance that, that we sort of experienced in 2003. I tell you what, is it, is it fascinating, or two fascinating uh, points here from uh, information. One is that we've heard nothing from the Home, home Office on this. Now, when you talk to uh, Aikenhead, Mr Aikenhead, who is the, or, uh, the uh, director of Porton Down, he basically said, listen, we identify what it is, and then we give it to Knacker of the Yard, mm. and he go and he sort of says, okay, listen, we'll go to the next stage. That was exactly now, it. Now, the police, uh, the uh, MI5, which doesn't really in include them, but partly does, is Home Office. Home Office have stayed out of this. Uh, or not entirely, but almost entirely. That's the first thing. Well, That's important. And the second thing is that there have been no leaks about this. I can't remember a major story like this, which includes the 2003 dirty dossier, where there haven't been backstairs leaks, people covering their backs or wanting to expose the story, or people simply wanted to tell it for the fun of it. But this is a sort of what, in the old Fleet Street terms, would have been, this is a leak-happy story. There hasn't been a single leak here, nor elsewhere. I want to 
pick up the leak thing with you in a second, Paul. Um, actually, you mentioned the Home Office. I just want to touch on that first of all, because I was wheeled out to a place north of St Albans this week to interview Gary, as you say, uh, the head of DSTL. And the reason perhaps we were there, apart from this, is which what we wanted to talk about, was the fact that DSTL have taken over a lot of the Home Office facilities. Mm. And that was one of them. And we were shown fingerprinting and all that sort of thing. So defence is moving into areas traditionally occupied by the Home Office. Maybe that's why they're quiet on this one. I don't know. But, Paul, what do you reckon to what Christopher's saying there, this lack of leaks that you'd normally get scores of with this? Is it because people just don't care, or is there something more sinister going on? I don't know if it's more sinister. I mean, this is the problem for the government in what appeared to be a story, if I can use that term loosely, which was extremely good for them or would show Labour traditionally to be weak on defence. It seems to be coming back to bite them in a way that's very unexpected. Part of this, I think, is down to Mr Johnson in his particular style because he was very specific in saying he'd been told personally and specifically by Portendown that this came from Russia. And clearly Portendown are at the very least guarding their backs, saying that this is not our job. And that does sort of open things up. There are suspicions that there's more to it than that. I mean, to take another angle, we've been told pretty well specifically, you know, the Russians are the people involved in this, nobody else is involved, this is something which they developed. The reality is that countries that fear the possible use of chemical weapons have the right under the Chemical Weapons Convention Treaty to actually explore and research these things and even produce them in very small quantities so they can work out antidotes. And when the details of the Novichok, Novichok nerve agents became known to the West, what, 20 years ago, uh, it beggars belief that places like Portendown and Edgewood in the United States and equivalents didn't actually do some work and probably do have very small samples. Uh, it is re reasonable and legitimate for them to do it, but the point is it's silly for politicians to say nobody else has this stuff, it is purely Russian, when that is almost certainly not true. It also gives this impression, doesn't it, that number 10 has sort of come across this sort of story as if uh, or what do we do about it? What do we say about it? There are in the Downing Street, there are four iPads. Just four? Just four iPads, which you use with the Prime Minister. Uh, one, uh, iPads 2, 3 and 4 uh, normally have three captions on them uh, or three headings on them. And these are the sort of answers, this is where we think we've got to on these particular stories that may affect you at any day of the week. And it's the basis of that big wadge of stuff that the Prime Minister takes in on Wednesday for Prime Minister's questions. Number one is the... This could catch a cold on this. This is this could be a difficult thing. These are the things that've got to be sorted out, and that's the most important of all the pads that they've got. And that only goes to two people, one of them the cabinet secretary. What appears to be happening at the moment is that uh, one has been rewritten. iPad one has been written, been rewritten, and it's saying, "What are we missing? What is likely to come up and hit us in the face?" because we've got to start to get this right. We've got to go back. And this is exactly, you know, uh, Boris Johnson, when he says, uh, Porton Down has told me, uh, Boris doesn't mean, oh, it was a guy at Porton Down. <laughs> He's talking about the boss of Porton Down, because the Foreign Secretary would only talk to the number one man. Or... He's talking to them on iPad 2, which is the best bet at the moment. It is information that appears, comes up at number 10, then goes to the Foreign Office, and people are working off the same, if you say, the, the same information table. And in fact, when he talks about it was important, done, it wasn't. It was stuff that was coming through Whitehall and comes through his, his morning briefing to the Foreign Secretary. That's where the sloppiness, etc. But watch the Home Office 
watch the uh, Amber Rudd, the, 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 the Home Secretary, she is the person that eventually will probably find somebody in her place which said, by the way, we did send you a note about this. Mm. That's the next sort of state that, that we actually get to. And the next thing is to watch for the leak. It's got to come sometime. You're on leak watch, aren't you? It's like Badger oh, Watch. But I've for 40 years. Paul, stay with us, won't you? Still to come, the half-speed frigates of the Royal Navy. But first, is the UK currently the target of a Russian disinformation campaign? So far, Russian government representatives have suggested that the nerve gas came from Sweden, the Czech Republic, and even the British Defence Laboratories at Porton Down. How should Britain deal with this kind of info warfare? Well, Elizabeth Braw is non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and says we can learn a lot from, uh, of all places, Sweden. Elizabeth, welcome to Syrup. Tell us about Sweden's experience. So Sweden hasn't been attacked by by nerve gas uh, so far, but what it has experienced for decades are submarine intrusions. And it started, as you know, during uh, Soviet times uh, when uh, time and again, almost annually, something would be spotted in in the archipelago, the Swedish archipelago. And uh, usually it couldn't, uh, the uh, the, the suspected submarine could not be found and it snuck away but it's it's that's very similar to a nerve, nerve gas attack because clearly something has happened and the country you suspect in, in which in, in this case uh, russia or the soviet union will then say no it wasn't us uh, you're mistaken it's not even a sub at all and so that's what uh, sweden has experienced over several decades now uh, a submarine is spotted the swedish navy goes out to to hunt it and invariably fails to to find it because it's extremely hard to to find and this Disable the sub, disable submarine, as you know, and so then the other side, i.e., Russia, the Soviet Union, could um, uh, could uh, put out into the public domain various alternative explanations that uh, then muddled the waters and made the, the public confused about what was actually happening. But how do the Swedes deal with this muddle and confusion? Uh, well, they have uh, muddled on through, uh, as you might say, over the years. But more recently, they've taken a, a very good approach, which you saw during the 2014 submarine hunt, um, when the prime minister, the defense minister and the, the chief of defense only um, spoke uh, jointly in public and issued public statements so that uh, everybody got the the distinct feeling that they were on top of things and they were doing things together. There was no sort of solo venturing uh, in the style of Boris Johnson. which I must say was very helpful because even though the chief of defense in particular was was mercilessly ridiculed by by Russian outlets uh, by appearing together these uh, three men as it were uh, as it was in this case uh, gave the distinct uh, uh, impression and in in, in fact uh, uh, feeling that they were uh, united, there was there was no uh, covering uh, one's back on, on, on at the expense of somebody else, but they did it together. And in the end, uh, the submarine wasn't found. But I would argue that was limited damage to the to the Swedish armed forces as a result, compared to what it could have been. So staying strong, showing unity in public, and just denying, as you say. Unity is something that's been absent in the last week or so with this Russian position here. Christopher Lee, Britain has been dealing with the cyber aspect of Russia, but propaganda operations are much, much longer. Are we in a strong position to counter them, or has this shown us to be quite weak? Um, The United Kingdom started in 19... 
1986, as far as I remember, uh, putting together uh, how you deal with propaganda on an international scale, because you have to convince, for example, an ally that what was happening in propaganda was important to them as much as important to you. Uh, and they started it and it was set up uh, at Ashford in Kent at the then headquarters of the intelligence corps. Uh, it wasn't a senior command. I think it was a half colonel or something like that in, in charge of it. What has changed, and what has changed importantly, is the technology from mm. this. And therefore, more people read the technology, more people are vulnerable to the technology, etc., and I think, by and large, the United Kingdom is probably ahead of it. But it, you then come to attitude. If I can just make one very small point this, about the Swedes and their submarines. The Swedes, actually, one of the reasons the Swedes didn't make a big deal of it, they didn't want to say anything about it. And they have this a history of being part of agreements, European agreements, for example, the Helsinki agreements of 1975. Uh, and, for example, they're showing a signatory to an agreement let's say Russia, let's say Poland, let's say United States or whatever, breaking let's, uh, perhaps an arms control agreement or, uh, and, or, or a, a, a forced level agreement, but the Swedes never want to actually publicly expose it. They don't want to take it to the United Nations. Uh, they don't like the idea that even if somebody's broken an agreement, anybody says anything about it because they, the Swedes instinctively do not want to live with confrontation. This thing that we're talking about today has gone today to the United Nations. That takes this to level, and it takes it to level about confrontation, propaganda, etc. All that will start coming out with the United Nations discussing this at Security Council level, and that's where it brings it up to a different, a different level entirely, where propaganda itself is not going to be sufficient because it will be exposed public on a larger scale. Paul, quick word on this. Is How worried are you about cyber and our lack or otherwise ability of dealing with it in causing miscalculation? I think it is a cause of concern, particularly when cyber attacks are able to damage critical infrastructure. But I think one has to understand that, as with propaganda generally and the whole business about information warfare, there's no doubt at all that the Russians involved in this, they will particularly want to take on states that are weak in other senses, and they see that Britain is weak, partly in relation to Brexit. But the point is, this is almost a kind of norm. Britain and the United States are very heavily involved in this kind of propaganda warfare elsewhere. I mean, the United States, classically in Ukraine at the time of the elections a few years ago. So this is not new, and it is not just Russia. It's one of the changes in warfare which moves us much more into this sort of irregular war era. And I think it's something we have to come to terms with. But yeah, it's a cause for concern, but the reality is that most people are at it and some are better at it than others. The United Kingdom, apart from if you go back to World War Two and sort of uh, Lord Haw Haw, etc., the United Kingdom started this idea with the Intelligence Corps back in the days of confrontation. There's the British confrontation in Malay Malaysia. That's 60 years ago. Mm. Well, propaganda's been going on, you know, yonks before that even, propaganda newspapers in the time of Napoleon. Anyway, we're not going down that route. Uh, Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Uh, well, one way Russia could um, strike back at the UK, if they're particularly unhappy, which they appear to be with uh, the way things are going at the moment between us, is the cyber attack. And Rob Wainwright is the executive director of Europol. He's been talking to Victoria Smith about cyber threats. What we've seen at Europol is how cyber security has become a much bigger international phenomena. If you look at WannaCry last year, which crippled the NHS in, in the UK, but actually hundreds of thousands of companies around the world 
that shows you that, that cybersecurity now is a global phenomenon, that we have to take it much more seriously. I think there are bad actors in the system, state actors, but also very powerful cyber criminal syndicates. So, you know, at Europol, we're working through RUSI and other areas to try and promote better cybersecurity awareness. And, and we need to wake up to the fact that this is now a major problem for us. You mentioned WannaCry, but how could another attack work? Where do you think it might, or who do you think, which organizations might it affect? Any, actually, in, in, in government space, in, in business. WannaCry itself hit so many different companies in so many different sectors. I think the financial services industries, the banks, are in the firing line. Last week, Europol um, and, and its global partners were able to announce the arrest of a major cyber criminal chief who running an organization that stole a billion dollars over four years by attacking over a hundred banks in the most enterprising way we've seen. He was, in the end, he, he was taking over remote controls, uh, control of the systems of, of the bank transfer payment systems, including the ATM networks. A very enterprising, almost a Hollywood-type scene in which cyber criminals these days can attack banks in such an innovative a way. Modern-day bank robber is not that person who walks in uh, holding a shotgun anymore. He's doing it in the comfort of his home, using techniques that allow him to steal a billion dollars over four years. So, you know, this, this is high-grade stuff now, which, which is attacking the banking industry, but also many other sectors. And how ready is Britain to deflect a cyber attack of that nature? Well, Britain, I think, is, is, is one of the leading uh, countries in the world, actually, in terms of its cyber defence capabilities. In protecting government, uh, in helping to protect um, the uh, businesses in Britain as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I think in Europe we recognise the UK as one of the leading uh, uh, players in the cyber security world. Well, would you agree with the Defence Secretary that more, more money, more facilities need to be put into this area? Well, actually, I'm encouraging all governments around Europe, and indeed all industry leaders, that, that indeed you have to invest more in this area. Uh, many of them are doing that now, actually. Uh, so I think the Defence Secretary is right to say that cybersecurity is essentially a high-grade national security uh, priority now. Um, what level of investment is, of course, up to the government of the day. But, I, but in, 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 in principle, yes, we have to uh, take this more seriously and invest more of our resources. There we go. That was Rob Wainwright talking with uh, Victoria Smith. He's the executive director of Europol. Newspaper reports in the UK have been suggesting that the Royal Navy surface fleet is not running at full steam because repairs haven't been carried out during refits and not all frigates are available for deployment. The Daily Express, Express even claimed that out of the Navy's 19 surface ships, only five are fully operational in UK waters. This at a time when senior serving and retired officers are citing greater threats or provocations from the Russian fleet. There's a Russian theme very much in this programme. Retired Rear Admiral Chris Parry joins us. Chris, thank you for joining us. One report said that a Type 23 frigate has just come out of refit without a complete overhaul of her four diesels, plus the coordinating system switchboard. That's bad enough, but this is one of the vessels standing for the Type 45s that are having a complete engine refit. Is this the sort of stuff you're hearing? Well, I think the uh, Royal Navy's surface fleet right now is not really fit for purpose. It's just about capable of going out and doing those routine peacetime tasks with which we're familiar. But it's certainly not a Navy that's geared for warfighting. 
Christopher Lee, tell us a little about this ship, the Type 23 frigate that sort of doesn't work, apparently. Well, um, basically what happens is the ship goes into refits, a couple of years job, this is in Devonport, um, and you go through the whole lot, but you've got a budget. And when you get to a certain crucial point, uh, and I think Chris can tell you more than I can about this, you have to decide what you're going to do with the budget when it's getting close to the knuckle. So, for example, you make sure that the, the weapon system works. And the Northumberland, for example, have uh, has two major problems, one with the, uh, with the diesels, and therefore the complete refit on those diesels was not done. It will be done at a later stage, after trials, after the refit trials, we're told. Um, but the other thing is there's... Uh, to describe it as a switchboard is not quite right, mm. but it's the, it's, it's the system that actually puts all the other systems together. Now, that was done to have a complete strip-down and replacement. Hasn't been done. If you put this into the context that this was one of the ships that if Type 45 went down, as they have been doing so, it would stand in for the Type 45, and you've got a ship that isn't actually, mm. can't, can't operate at more than sort of three quarters power, and that is one of the difficulties, and it's not the only one. Now, Chris Parry, is, is this sort of thing the norm, or was it the norm in your time, that a ship were going for a refit, but bits wouldn't be done because there wasn't the cash? No, certainly not the case. It's rather like putting your car in for a routine service, expecting things to be done, and then finding out there's only a third of them being completed. Uh, you wouldn't be very happy with that, and you shouldn't be happy with one of our frontline warships. Um, I'd say about the time of the um, first Gulf War in the 1990s, the Royal Navy probably was uh, at uh, its peak efficiency and operational capability, and we've had a steady decline since then. And I'm afraid to say that we have a Navy, in fact, we have all three armed forces at the moment that are benchmarked against uh, Islamic State, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And I'm afraid to say that the politicians have taken risk against uh, our armed forces down to that level. Uh, and on the basis that they can turn out every day against that sort of opposition, they've taken risks, they've taken savings, and they've failed, I'm afraid, to resource it. Um, I did a survey recently amongst mid-seniority officers in the Royal Navy, and none of them uh, feels confident about going uh, up against a, a peer opponent, shall we say, and and that's code for Russia or China uh, in any in any sort of confrontational situation. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, let's face it: if we went up against Russia or China, we, we'd lose, and that's always been the case. But are you saying yeah, that ship against ship? You cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with an equivalent ship in the Russian or the Chinese Navy at the moment because, uh, A, uh, I'm afraid the uh, maintainability hasn't uh, been sustained. But secondly, our weapons and sensor systems haven't uh, been modernised to cope with the emerging threats. How depressed are the people you spoke to about this? They're not depressed. They're professional. They're high state of morale. Uh, but of course, that morale can be sustained when you're in a peacetime environment. But if you're trying to resist coercion, deter things happening around the world, like the Chinese fortifying the Spratly and Paracels, like the Russians encroaching on the Black uh, and the Baltic Seas, uh, then you're in a pretty sorry state, I'm afraid to say. Um, we put some of these points, um, HMS Northumberland that Christopher Lee mentioned, and the Type 23 frigates to the MOD in a series of questions. Um, paraphrasing their reply to us, they basically say we do not discuss the readiness states of individual ships, as to do so would allow deductions to be made as to our capabilities. And then they say that the Royal Navy continues to meet current commitments with ships deployed around the world, etc., etc. Christopher Lee. Uh, uh, you go and talk to uh, 
uh, go down to Devonport where the uh, the Northumberland is at the moment, and you talk to guys with spanners. It's what you do at the weekend. <laughs> yes, it's the sort of thing you do at the weekend. Talk to the guys. No, come on. Um, it is. It is. It is absolutely true that the ship leaves uh, refit, and then it goes to trials. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes to work up, etc. And you look at the new systems because you are doing a lot of work, etc. Yeah, as we've seen with the QE2 carriers, it takes time to get everything. It right. does take time yes. to do everything. But sometimes I get the impression that the navy is being sold uh, in pub to the public rather short, in as much that you say, well, we've got this blooming, uh, we've got we've we've got a, an aircraft carrier which is which is fine, no, no, no airplanes, but we've got an aircraft carrier, and we're going to get another aircraft carrier, um, but we don't have any air defence destroyers that can look after it and the Type 23s which are supposed to take, stand in for them because we don't have the 26s yet or the 31s mm, mm. Uh, and, and you know how many ships are operational at the moment? Two in British waters two at a time when people like Chris and Chris Parry and others are saying you really have to do watch you have yeah. to watch what the Russians are doing that's what we do for a living and we haven't got the tools to do it. Excellent uh, Rear Admiral Chris Parry thank you for joining us now this bit, I have no idea what is happening because it's unscripted. But I'm told to hand to you, Christopher Lee. Sure, that's a risk, isn't it? <laughs> um, I was just thinking. This is, I mean, because everybody else would know. Uh, Tim, your last sit rep today before you leave BFBS to it go is. and report on ice cream sales in the <laughs> Channel Islands, etc., for another yeah. company. Um, We've reported, was it two wars? Three wars? Um, two, two stints in Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. All three services from top to bottom. Uh, <laughs> and, because, and because you're extraordinarily lucky, um, or, and, and lots of influence, you've had a chance to present SITREP as well. And when you think about it, that, you know what we're talking about today, international cold wars, etc., etc. Et um, listen to this, will you, if you've got a moment. Rotors whirring, four links on the pan at RAF Odeon. In unison, they rose from the ground and with perfect synchronisation turned to their right and at about 75 feet moved down the runway. It really was fascinating being in the courtyard of Buckingham Palace, watching this little part of history. On the left of me, the Scots Guards in their bearskins. On the right, the sailors in their naval uniforms. The transfer of century was the high point for me First to do it, A.B. Alex Stacey from HMS Seahawk, A.B. Laura Suttle from HMS Nelson. Over the next few weeks, there, the sailors will also guard Windsor Castle, St. James's Palace and the Tower of London. Tim Cooper, Forces News, Buckingham Palace. No one's downhearted here, though. As one person said to me, look, Denver typified the wartime generation. If they could get through that, well, this is nothing, is it? Everyone's still having a great time in honour of 100 years reached by the original Forces sweetheart. Yeah, I remember that. That was on a cliff. The White Cliffs of Dover, and we were covered by fog. <laughs> I was lying slightly. Mean, we weren't having a great time. <laughs> the continent was isolated. <laughs> yeah, Tommy, uh, uh, all, all the gear, all the, all the all the helicopters, the submarines, the mm. aircraft, etc. By the way, I was a bit disturbed at the fact that all the reports about the Royal Navy that it was it kept turning right. There's a political <laughs> story here to be done. Um, it's about the people, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. A decade, yeah. um, they've changed. I think they have. Um, it, it is very much about the people, I think. And the highlight, it's wrong to say you're in a war zone and it's a highlight, but you're with people and they're very honest and very approachable in someone like Afghanistan. You come back here, 
and the world's changed with social media, people are much more guarded about things now. And the military are as well, and our relationship, I think, has changed a bit. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, what about, the, what about the people that are joining the services, or in, in many mm. cases not joining? Are they different? Are they joining for different reasons? Are they got different personalities? I don't know. That's a good question. I see a lot more people that have perhaps come to university and think, well, that's that's what we have to do these days. We're encouraged to do it. And they go and come out and then they join up as a rating, say, in the Navy or as a private soldier. So there are differences there. Yeah. And you see a ship. I mean, we were talking earlier in the programme about Northumberland and it's it's not, not mm. got a good history at the moment. But you actually do see in a ship the guys with the spanners, the guys actually making the ship work. And it's... Always a question of not. Sometimes you've not got the first eleven to work with, but you, without being too patriotic, we've got the first eleven to actually drive the ship. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a fair point. And uh, well, thank you for that. That was quite nice. I, enjoyed I quite enjoyed it. Where, yeah. you, where are you going to live? Me, I'm going to go and live in St Helia. Oh, can you do us a piece? I'm going to go and get myself a, a beige, not beige, burgundy Triumph Roadster and drive around the island a lot. Yes. I might do a piece if you make it a nice. television job. Um, yeah, that's it. Christopher Lee, thank you. It's been a thank pleasure you. over the years. Kate Chabot's back next week. Never mind. <laughs> go on podcast and all that nonsense from me, Tim Cooper. Thank you so much for listening over all of what seemed like a lifetime, but has only been nine years. From us all. Bye bye. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.